Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And on tonight's program, it's a very special interview with Rudy Philippic Van Dyke, the founder of FN Arena. Now, I've interviewed Rudy for many years, probably over a decade of interviews, and I said to him, this has to be the greatest interview that we've ever done. It certainly proved to be the longest, and I really think it probably is up there as one of the greatest we've ever done. Really looks at all the big issues around investing, gives some um, great names or great companies that he likes right now. I think you'll find it very, very insightful, and you'll also get some really good ideas of companies that you might want to invest in. And then Paul Ricard looks at defensive stocks and ETFs that play a defensive game. He defines them and looks at some of the big names that are defensive, and these defensive stocks do tend to pay good income and also don't jump around very much compared to those high growth stocks like tech stocks that recently have really plummeted after zooming higher in years gone by. And then we talked to Paul Mirren of M Squared Capital to see what's going on in the property market and how badly might house prices fall. That's the show. Let's kick off now with what I think is one of the best interviews I've ever done with Rudy Philippe Van Dyke. Well, I said it in the introduction that this will be the greatest interview I've ever had with Rudy Philippe Van Dyke. And let me tell you, there have been some great ones in the past, but this will be the best. Rudy, no pressure. How are you going, mate? Well, there's, there's two ways of seeing this. Either all my interviews previously were not that good, or I'm really under pressure now. Yeah. Now, <laughs> all our interviews in the past have been legendary. The feedback is always fantastic, and that's why we've got you here. But I think there's lots of good reasons to hope that we rise to the occasion, the very high, high jump bar I've set in making this the best we've ever done. Well, I can, I can but try to explain what's happening in markets, uh, Peter, and that might be a good okay. start. Let, let's, let's kick off really big and macro, first of all. Mm. We saw an interesting inflation number in the US, which quite excited the US and also the bond markets. And you're, you're a guy who doesn't ignore the bond markets. Was, was, is the bond market falling because of the, the better than expected inflation number? or because of recession fears, or a bit of both? It's a bit of both. And um, in particular in Australia, and I've been of this view for quite a while, the bond market has priced in quite an aggressive path forward for the, for the RBA. And while it's very popular in finance to say, uh, the bond market signals this or that, I have been of the view that we should ignore the bond market locally, uh, it's way too aggressive, and um, I, mean, uh, I, I, I won't drink beer for a whole year if the RBA ends up uh, tightening uh, the way the bond market is pricing it in. So that that's, that shows my conviction, because yeah. I like beer. And local brewers don't have to worry, because I totally agree with you, but go on. In the US, however, um, the aggressive path is, that is priced in is, is, is will probably be matched with, uh, with aggressive tightening uh, by, the, by the, the Federal Reserve over there. The, the market is, hope, is anticipating, hope, hoping for a flattening 
curve in in the, in the momentum of inflation and and we should see that because inflation has been very very steep uh, in its growth uh, last year and um, we would all hope that it doesn't uh, keep on rising at that 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 speed um that is part of the story and that is actually good good news for for equities because um if bond markets settle down and at the very least don't 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 have to uh, keep keep rising that gives breathing space for equities yeah. and, and in a general sense, but it also gives breathing space to those segments of the market that have had it tough when uh, bond, uh, bond yields were rising quite steeply. And we have to think about the, <clears throat> the so-called bond proxies. And, and in Australia, you would have to be thinking at stocks like uh, Stockland and um, a Goodman Group and a Charter Hall and, and the likes. And, and you also have um, the so-called defensive growth companies. And, and you can add the likes in of, uh, of a Woolworths, for example, and an Amcor. And, and you also have the, the, the quality uh, end of the market and that, that traditionally trades on, on, on higher valuations. They've, they've done it tough while bond yields uh, cause the deuration of, of, of share markets. And so the likes of uh, ResMed, Cochlear, CSL, uh, REA Group, uh, car sales, you name it, they, they all um, can look forward to, uh, to some breathing space when, when bond markets settle down. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah. of course, there is still the other, the other end of the story. We, uh, we are tightening mm. in a, uh, um, a slowing economy. And um, that I think that yet has to have a, a significant impact on, on bond yields. Mm. Yeah, and I, I should make it because you, you were saying what well, you sound like you're saying bull markets, but you're saying a, a bull bond market. Is that, is that what you were saying? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I mentioned the bull word. I was just talking bond markets. Bond market. but, uh, okay. I, uh, to, to, just in case people to, to weren't lift, hearing you properly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. to lift the. Uh, to lift this interview towards the standard it needs to be. Yeah. I think for investors in equities, I think it's important to understand that the, the duration that's going on, the devaluation of equity that is happening, it is going through several phases. And, and in the first phase, we, we had some exuberance that needed to, to come out of the market. Yep. And the next thing we had, we, we, had to, we, we had to go to lower valuations because bond yields higher means lower valuations for other assets. So we have, we need to, need to go through that process. So now we're moving, I think now we're moving into the next phase. And now we're going to get worried about global growth and in particular about corporate margins and profits. And um, uh, I've been writing about this for, for a few months now. And it's, um, I think we will have a, a true confession season. My, my tongue is not cooperating here. Mm true confession season ahead of the august reporting season so we should be we should be careful now that we don't own too many companies that look a little bit shaky when uh, their uh, operations are uh, encountering uh, some headwinds yeah and so we should explain to people confession season really probably is catholic so that's probably the reason why because most Belgians are, I, I, I presume, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but, but the confession season is when companies actually come out before reporting and actually say, well, things haven't been going as well as we, we expected. And that can lead to a sell-off, can't it? 
they, they literally say, uh, dear market, I have sinned. <laughs> and, and then they get punished. Yeah, I think it's it. underlying your Catholicism, Rudy. But let's, let's move on to other topics. And this is quite a religious topic. A lot of people love tech stocks and they're praying for a comeback in tech stocks. And they, I, on my reckoning, a lot of really good tech companies have been excessively sold off. I do believe I, one of my favourite ones in the world, which I thought was over bash, was Zoom. And the reason is, like, you and I are using Zoom mm. right now. And I thought, this is a company of the future no matter what. We've got people wanting to work from home, that's Zoom. Uh, we've got people like me accessing great legendary stock pickers like you or stock analysts like you. Zoom makes it really easy to do it. It means I can get CEOs really easily where five years ago it would be very hard. So Zoom's got a real future. I thought it was belted up too far and we saw last week well, it was about a 22% rebound um, for that company. And there are Aussie companies I think in the, in the same mould. What, what do you think is going to be needed for those Aussie tech companies to, to at least get back to a fair value considering their future? Uh, well, I... Um, I, I, I underwrite your sentiment towards uh, uh, technology stocks in general. And it's good for people also to understand that uh, what we've seen is probably the, the most severe sell-off for that sector since we had the, the NASDAQ meltdown in the year 2000. And this time it went real much quicker. Yeah. So what the, market, what the market essentially has done, it has, it has cast aside all those companies that were of low quality, no earnings, a big promise, but not really good in, ex in execution and probably not really a profitable future. Mm. And, and you've seen a lot of those stocks going down by 70, 80, 90%. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't even stop there. Um, next up are the companies that uh, are not profitable, but they do have a, a decent business model and they're actually generating enough free cash flow. And, and we have companies in the market like, uh, like a DexCC and, 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 a, and a Zero in Australia. I mean, a lot of investors don't want to go there because those companies officially are not profitable, uh, but they generate enough cash out of their business model and they have a, they have a bright future ahead of them. And they grow. They don't they, have really? to come to the market. And, and, they, and yeah, they are growing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. They, yeah. They, are still, they are still putting in the numbers 20, 30, 40, 50, 60%. Um, uh, where other companies can only dream of, mm. and then you have a, then you have another another category of stocks which um, which I which I I'm just waiting for them to uh, regain that momentum again, mm. and, and we have to realize that technology in itself is 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 not necessarily carrying the label of technology. I mean, um, it can be healthcare, and it can be uh, finance. Mm. Uh, I mean, is is computer share a technology company? I think it's a finance company, but for some reason, it's, it's sometimes labeled in with yeah. the technology. Right. And the same uh, remarks can be made about ResMed, Cochlear, etc. Now, if you go to pure technology, um, well, you can also throw in ProMedicus, for example, one, probably one of the most uh, promising business models we have on the ASX, uh, always expensive, uh, but it has come down a lot from, from the exuberance we saw from last year. And then, we, of course, we have we have uh, the pure, more the pure uh, form of technology companies. We have the likes of Technology One, for example, which remains, in my view, one, one, one of the stocks that you can just ha really have in, in your portfolio and just let it sit there. And, and the problem with, with how the market operates is that at some point, everything that just smells and a little bit of technology gets thrown out with the bathwater. 
and, we, and we've seen that. Oh. And, and, and if, if, if the technology stock only came down by 30%, uh, it actually did very well. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm having a few in mind here, but um, I am convinced that those uh, high quality uh, companies in, in, the in the local technology sector, and I were thinking technology one, but we're also thinking ProMedicus, and we're thinking WiseTech Global and Zero and, and NextCC, mm. which essentially is not a technology company, but it's labeled as such. I'm convinced that the, those uh, business models have a lot more growth ahead of them. And we're talking probably a decade and longer. Mm. It's just that when bond deals are rising, share market investors don't want to go there. Yeah. And, uh, and there was generally a fear of, calling a, uh, of, of catching a falling knife. Mm. And once again, once, once the bond market can settle down, we can all get a little bit more comfortable with the outlook uh, for inflation. Mm and for uh, valuations, then all of a sudden you will find that uh, it, in particular the quality end at first will will, will, will see buyers come stepping in. And of course, some of those companies that I've mentioned, the likes of uh, ProMedicus and, and, and the Technology One, I don't think they have to be particularly fearful of a potential recession that might be uh, around the corner just to throw in uh, a statistic of one of the companies I know I know very well. Technology One recently reported their, their financial numbers and the, the churn in the customer base was uh, as low as it's ever been. It was about 0.01%. Mm. Imagine that one. I think from memory it was 0.09, but anyway, mm. it is so low that the, the business deserves to trade on, on a premium and it should not be worried about potentially a slowdown in the economy and, and maybe worse in, in economies like uh, the UK and Europe. Yeah. Rudy, I, I'm suspecting that uh, there's going to be a lot of M&A activity once, once the worst or fears around interest rates, all those things that were settled down. And we saw last week there was the, the odd one around Appen, which, which Appen shareholders were praying for. It lasted one day. But I, like a company like Pushpay is another one that's the uh, attention, but I, I also think companies like Zip and Tyro must be. What, why aren't banks even thinking about these? These are so cheap now, and they've got big strangleholds in areas where banks haven't got strangleholds. Uh, they, they look such like good value to me. But are you suspecting that some of these tech stocks will become targets of takeovers? Uh, I'm not so sure about the uh, uh, buy now, pay later sector, to be honest, Peter, but uh, if for technology in general, absolutely. Mm. And you see that also, uh, just to throw in another one, uh, Infomedia has also uh, yeah. received a, a takeover bid. Um, it wasn't that long ago that uh, Altium uh, got a takeover bid, uh, which uh, also disappeared quite quickly. Um, and and, uh, and, and I, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe you are right. Maybe I'm not. Uh, because I remember now that uh, Hum Group is still selling their uh, BNPL uh, operations to uh, um, Fahur and his business Latitude. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I will definitely, and that is that probably that probably comes into that that narrative as well. That while equity investors are are, are at the moment very very reticent to uh, to put a lot of money in that sector. Yeah. Those who are in the sector, they know that there's bargains to be had. Yeah, and, and, and it seems to me, because banks have given up so many opportunities to make money because they've sold their wealth businesses and they want to be in banking. And you know, a, a company like Tyro effectively isn't is a bank. 
by the way, we, we forget it is actually a bank, and it's in an area where most banks aren't. Uh, Combank is, because they, they actually bought Klarna, didn't they? Um, which of course is by now pay later, but, um, but they're all, all in that sort of space. So it makes sense that one day down the track, we might get, open, open up the newspapers or go to great websites and discover those news stories. Let's go to another one. Um, uh, but by now pay later, do, what do you think the future of this is going to be, Rudy? Big ones survive, little ones die. Well, I've, 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 yeah, well, I've always thought that after the euphoria stage, we, we get consolidation. And um, it, it, to me, it was always obvious uh, that you couldn't have 1,012 uh, operators in that market, uh, uh, so to speak. Um, the, the, the whole characteristic of, of technology and of finance ultimately uh, means that you, you, are, you are being left with, with three, four, maybe five players mm -hmm. in, that, that basically dominate that market. I mean, if you look at, for example, the, the credit card industry, you basically have three major yeah. players. That's it. Okay. You mean there might be a few smaller ones here and there, but they don't really count, and we don't really know about them. Mm. And 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 a, a sector like uh, car manufacturers probably uh, have ulti ultimately going towards uh, towards a smaller group of players as well. They've already have been consolidating a lot over the past decade. Um, a sector like buy now pay later uh, past the euphoria stage, it will it will be left with a few players, and then of course the race is on. To decide which players will that be. Mm. I mean, well, I think that that's the reason why Block, uh, nowadays called Block, uh, used, used to be called Square, why they went for uh, uh, the number one player in that market, mm. because all of a sudden they have a, a high chance of being left over with uh, a big market share as one of the survivors. Yeah. The, the, the challenge for the smaller players will be um, how, how much market share can they can they grab before the big players move in. And the banks, I mean, they may not have been eager so far to uh, to buy some of those players, but most of the banks around the world are, are sort of looking into launching their own uh, competing products. Mm. And I, I, um, NAB's done it this week. And, may, and maybe, that's, maybe that's also part of, of, of how that sector will consolidate. Yeah. Um, let's go to Asia, Asia for a moment. We know that President Xi decided he wanted, he wanted to pick on tech stocks and they got clobbered. He's kind of backing off now, and he also needs to get his economy growing. Uh, and some people asked me during that period where Asian stocks, you know, the 10 cents that the Beidus, the ones that have done really well for a long time. People would often ask me, you know, should I buy an ETF, you know, like Asia or one of those for an eventual rebound of Asian stocks? And the emerging economies actually, you know, do well, don't they, in certain phases? Well, do you have a view on Asian stocks, Rudy? Um, uh, my my, my favourite saying about uh, emerging markets, and I have to say, I have not come up with this myself, yeah. but emerging markets are markets for which you cannot emerge in an emergency. <laughs> uh, so the, the risk profile is higher yeah. uh, for emerging markets. I mean, I'm someone who uh, spends a lot of time and attention to governance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and from, from many years of experience, even when I was overseas, I can tell you that governments in Asia is not the same as we are used to it in, in Australia yeah. and in, in more developed economies. Governments and governments. Um, governments yes, and governments. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. And, and it's not, it's, it's mean, 
I, I'm always a little bit cautious when when uh, there's a lot of opaque business going on and there's there's more happening beneath the surface than than is supposed to see the sunlight. Um, I do think that uh, many investors have paid a high price for ignoring uh, the higher risk profile of emerging markets, in particular by 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 um, simply taking big stakes in in in, uh, in technology companies that, that happen to be in China. Um, there is there is a value to be had in 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 a technology company in Australia or in the United States or in Europe, uh, because at the least you know they're well governed and their governance uh, is, is probably of a, of a much higher level. And, and obviously the regulations are, are there as well, although they, 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 sh they should pay more tax, to be honest, mm. but um, that's, that's a different issue. Mm. So I'm, I'm usually less, I'm usually more cautious, in particular, now that we are moving into a, a, a global picture that looks uh, tougher on profits yep. and on equity markets. Um, I'm more of the view that you, you you reduce risk in this environment and you don't necessarily take on extra risk. We can always revisit those um, those higher risk uh, op, uh, propositions at a later stage. Okay. Uh, so on the subject of, okay, there, there's risky, um, you've always had a view on good quality income stocks. What are, what are your favourite mm. good quality income stocks? For the, for the scared investor out there watching saying, Rudy, give me some safety. <laughs> well, how about, um, I'm going to say a, a very obvious one, um, and I think in this environment, uh, Telstra is, a, is, a, is an excellent mm -hmm. defensive uh, safe haven to put, to put your money in. It doesn't mean that Telstra is immune from cost increases and from uh, potentially a more, a more hesitant uh, consumer, uh, but I do believe that uh, if you add everything up, uh, Telstra surely has to be on everyone's radar who wants uh, a relatively safe uh, dividend income yep. uh, plus franking, and they're not going to cut their dividend. That's that's almost a given. Uh, maybe on the on the more on the less known side, um, there is a, a, a REIT on, on the stock exchange called uh, Waypoint REIT, and the company code is WPR. And is that the one um, that's basically petrol stations. Yeah, petrol stations. Yeah, yeah. Yes, mm. petrol stations. Yeah. And uh, while petrol stations are under threat longer term, because we are we are moving towards electric vehicles and they, they will have to find a new future for themselves. The risk profile for Waypoint here looks very favorable because the, the share price has sold off on, uh, on higher bond yields, uh, but they're actually culling their, their asset base. So they're selling some of the least profitable, least attractive petrol stations, and they're handing back most of the money they're getting from that to, to shareholders. Hmm. And on that basis, uh, Waypoint should be considered a relatively lower risk, more attractive uh, proposition uh, at the share price where it, where it is now, which looks, um, and I'm not, this touch of me, that this is analysts who cover, who cover the sector. Hmm. They all think it's, it's heavily undervalued here. Okay, let's um, get to the, the big picture for those people who like to invest in ETFs. If they're thrill seekers, they might go for something like gear. Uh, and uh, so let's talk about where you think the market will be by Christmas time. You know, when we get that Santa Claus rally that we often talk about, you know, we're going to talk about something around mm. Christmas time. Um, are you seeing a market rebound, not necessarily back to where we were, but certainly mm. higher from the levels we're currently seeing? 
Peter, the the the, the, the truth is, I I really don't know, and, and and my worry is that while we we while corporate profits at the index are probably poised to hold up relatively well in Australia, my worry is that we might see a sharp fall in profitability in the US, in the US where profits have been quite oversized over the past two yeah. years. They they had record margins until recently. And, and obviously record profit growth has, has, has basically translated to, into a much larger gains than, than, than we saw in Australia. My worry is that if things go off the rails in the United States over the next two quarters, let's say, uh, that we won't be immune in Australia. So my worry is a bit that that it won't be up to us, and that we we will get um, we will get sold down in in uh, if they do, and that we won't we won't be able to withstand uh, the, the the downward pressure. Having said so, um, we, if we take a view of let's say sixteen months from here, maybe eighteen, two years, um, it's it's hard to see how how many of the quality companies here are not great value on on, on that horizon. Mm. Um, the caveat, of course, is that um, share prices over the next six months or so, they can go lower. Uh, but I do, I, I, I also believe that from current levels, if, if you look beyond that, uh, that, that uh, share prices should perform well in, um, in the at least in the, in the quality companies. I'm, I'm, I still have my doubts whether that will remain the case in, in the highly cyclical uh, sectors. A lot of investors, of course, have have sought refuge in in, uh, in the cyclical sectors, in particular in the energy sector in Australia, and in the banks and and, and, and in iron ore producers. Uh, very good dividend payers. Um, we're going to see a record dividend again from BHP in December uh, in August. But my worry for the, for those segments of the markets are that if Europe, the UK, and potentially the United States um, uh, go into a recession or uh, if at the very least a recession scare, I'm, I'm a little bit worried whether those those sectors can hold up in Australia, that they're the very cyclical sectors, because history suggests to me that ultimately uh, very low economic growth, it doesn't have to go negative, mm. uh, it, it does translate into lower prices for, for oil, gas, iron ore, copper, uh, nickel, you name it. Yeah. So we pray for that Ukraine war to stop, haven't we? But let's just go one last question. There's a, a, a I think a, a person who you would call a fan critic, if such a, a word exists, and his name's Anton, and he often says, Rudy always says CSL, but it's underperformed for one or two years. Do you think by the end of this year you'll be able to say, Anton, I told you so? Are you going to see CSL hovering towards 300? I am inclined to say I buy Anton a beer if that's not the case. Okay. Um, I th I think uh, I think the tougher the environment uh, will will become looking forward, uh, the more a stock like CSL will shine in this in this market. Okay. And that's 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 with conviction. Yeah. Well, you, you've actually given us a lot of insights in this interview, Rudy. But one in particular, a lot of people do, may well have not known that you have a great fascination with beer. And you've brought it up at least on two occasions in this interview, which is, if it's not our greatest interview, I think it's probably our longest. And thanks very much for your contribution. My pleasure, Peter. Rudy Philippek Van Dyke of FN Arena.
Hello and welcome to Switzer TV, I'm Peter Switzer. And today we want to focus on investing in defensive stocks directly or else using ETFs. Paul, what is a defensive stock? Let's start with the, uh, the definition from Investopedia. This is a US definition, Peter, but mm. let's, let's go with it to start with. Yep. Look, it's a stock that provides constant dividends and stable earnings regardless of the state of the overall market. So uh, predictable income, predictable distributions, uh, and uh, you, know, you should get it depending whether the market goes up or down. They also look at it on the basis of it's a, uh, that where their products and their income is, is pretty reliable so that they shouldn't be exposed or they shouldn't have a huge volatility of earnings as you go through the various um, phases of the business cycle. Yeah, and, and they're for really risk-averse investors, aren't they, Paul? Yeah, look, for people who want uh, reliable income, uh, mm. perhaps not so much after capital growth, doesn't mean you can't lose money on a defensive stock, but uh, a fairly high degree of reliability and certainty. I've added to that definition a little bit. It's a bit US, and yeah. I think this is probably a little bit more uh, suits the Australian market. The first part is around the, the industry and the activity they're engaged in. The second part is some quantitative measures. Uh, most importantly, the business they're in has to be relatively immune to the economic cycle. So if the economy crashes, their earnings aren't going to crash as well. So you want them to be sort of pretty consistent. Doesn't matter whether we're through a boom or, or yeah. a, bear mar a bear economic cycle. Yeah. Uh, not to, exp to expose to other shocks or other exogenous factors. So often an insurance company, for example, you wouldn't... A cyclone, yeah. Yeah, you could have some sort of big natural peril come out and it may not be classified as a defensive stock because it simply cannot control yeah. Uh, what happens for the sales and revenue should be pretty reliable and steady yeah. right doesn't mean you don't want it increasing but it should be pretty predictable doesn't matter what happens and not a price take in other words not dependent on someone else's price so that rules out most of your resource companies who are just price takers and have no control on the actual amount of revenue yeah. they receive i always think about companies like west farmers uh, well particularly woolworths and coles paul they are they sort of companies where people turn up even during a recession the share price can fall a bit, but the revenues still keep coming through. Yeah, people still have to buy their groceries and their milk and their yeah. detergents and all the other stuff they buy at those stores. So, yeah. And really, not much changes. To, it doesn't really matter whether how strong the economy is. Yeah. But there are some uh, quantitative measures that can be useful as well. The first one is a low beta. Now, beta of one means the stock basically goes up and down with the market. When the beta is above one, it means it goes up more than the market and falls by more than the market mm. as the market goes through its daily cycles. So less than one means it's less volatile than the market. Mm. Uh, typically, they'll have an above average dividend, not always high dividends, but they'll pay more than the market or more than their competitors. Typically, they'll also have lower price earnings multiples and they'll generally be, have lower gearing. So uh, companies that are highly geared often aren't considered to be defensive stocks. Okay, so let's go and, and look at some classic examples. Yeah, and these are really drawn from uh, five or six sectors. Now there are 11 sectors and you'll notice that there are no materials, no energy companies, uh, and very, really no one from the consumer discretionary sector yeah, yeah. or the information technology. Because they can be volatile. Which can be volatile uh, mm. and aren't defensive. So let's go through the classic sectors. First of all, consumer staples, which is probably the most stable sector and where a lot of defensive stocks yeah. get drawn from. Names such as Woolworths, Coles and Debra Drinks. Utilities, those that aren't dependent upon the energy price. Companies like APA, which of course just transports gas through its pipe mm. networks. Um, typically, banks are not defensive stocks, and that's because you know if you get a really bad economic downturn, their bad debt can blow yeah. out, and there goes their dividend. And we saw that not so long ago when all the banks had to raise capital. We saw it in the COVID crash when they cut their dividends quite substantially. 
and they had to protect their, their bottom lines. But a company like Medibank Private, which although it's involved in insurance, that's health insurance. You don't have massive, great big, you know, natural perils risk. It's very predictable. Uh, that and a company like uh, um, NBI, or, or in, in, it's a competitor, yeah. uh, NIB, yeah. uh, is, would probably be both considered to be defensive yeah. stocks. The industrials, I'm not talking about those that make things that's more in the transport sector, a company like Transurban and its toll roads, Horizon, which uh, you know, hauls commodities. I'd say Telstra is probably uh, mm. meets the definition of, of a defensive stock. People very reliable. Keep, keep paying for their mobile phone no matter what. Yeah, but the earnings are pretty stable. We're actually seeing a bit of growth, which is positive, but there hasn't been you know, a lot of movement in earnings. And then some others. Um, I mentioned in consumer discretionary normally aren't considered to be defensive stocks, but the Lottery Corp, which has just recently spun off from Tabcorp, mm. all the data shows that people still buy as much spend as much money on Kino and the lotteries as they do, whether it's a strong economy or a poor that's economy. That's when they need it. Poor economy, <laughs> that's they, when need, they, need it. they need a win. Maybe some of the property trusts, it would depend what they're involved in and how much debt they've got. Some of the companies have got really long-term leases, companies like the Charterhall Long Whale REIT. Uh, and InvoCare, which is, of course, involved in the funeral business, I classify that as pretty much a defensive yeah. stock. It has been a good dividend payment in the past as well. Okay, let's look at the extra... Let's look at the exchange-traded funds approach to defensive stocks. Yeah, now it's important to note here, Peter, Peter these are not classic, de defensive. classic defensive stocks. Mm -hmm. and in fact, they're taking much bigger portfolios uh, right across the board. And so they're going to have some stocks that aren't defensive. But overall, a lot of these funds are being set up to be less volatile, higher income, and naturally they're just a bit more defensive than perhaps just investing in the straight uh, ETF that just mirrors the index. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is why I've listed them, Peter, but they're just with that important caveat. In really two categories, one's in sort of the higher yield category and the second is sort of the lower volatility category. Let's go to the higher yield. We've got two different forms of it. We've got the passively managed ETFs. These are your classic ETF, things like the Vanguard Australian Shares High Yield ETF. Mm. That, that tracks the special index that's been created of, um, of so-called stocks that pay above average market yields, yeah. but also have some other quality indicators. And yeah. so uh, that's quite <coughs> diversified. iShares has also got a product uh, called Dividend Opportunities, IHD, and also one from ETF Securities under the code of ZYAU. Then there are, there are the actively managed ones. This is where you've got fund managers actually trying to pick the stocks. And mm. again, the, the same metric, they're looking at what they would describe as quality companies, good, reliable, predictable earnings, pay a high dividend, uh, not too much gearing, and probably not as much market volatility. So mm. things like the, the beta shares, Martin Curry Real Income Fund, there's a dividend growth fund from Switzerland, and the E-Invest Income Generator Fund. Mm. And then we have a lower volatility fund, which is a special uh, ETF that uh, iShares has created that tracks a special index that's been set to basically pick companies that are less volatile. Mm. Uh, and you could argue that's a defensive way to uh, take some exposure to the market. Mm. I guess the only other thing to point out with defensive stocks, Peter, is that you can still lose money on a defensive stock because yeah. uh, capital prices still go up and down. Mm. They perhaps just don't go down as much when the market falls and actually up as much when the market rises. Yeah, so, so, and they offer compensation in the sense that because they pay higher income, you might lose some capital gain uh, in the short term, which eventually comes back if it's a good quality fund or a good quality stock. 
But at the end of the day, you're getting that income along the way, which makes it a little bit more defensive than a pure growth play. Yeah, you, and you don't, you don't want to be in a dividend trap. Dividend traps never come back. And so they're hopefully selecting those companies that, uh, that, that will come back when they fall um, mm. because they can increase earnings and increase their dividends over time. Yeah. But uh, certainly they're paying, it's fairly attractive, and there's not a lot of earnings growth, but uh, you know, the market won't be too hard on the way down and probably won't look at them too fav- you know, with too much gusto on the way up. That's right. That's some great insights there, mate. Thanks for joining us on Switzer TV. Well, I'm catching up with Paul Mirren uh, of a, a company called M Squared Capital. They're in the, the credit space at a time when interest rates are on the rise. So he's the right person to talk to. Great to see you, mate. Thank you so much. Um, a lot of people out there are really worried about interest rate rises. Mm. Um, fed by my mates in the media, um, and probably they've been fed by some economists who, who I think have gone to la-la land with their, mm. their forecasts. Um, what is your expectation about what interest rates might happen for the rest of 2022 and maybe rolling into early 2023? Look, the, the forecasts in relation to inflation, mm. are it all stems down from inflation. Yep. So um, if we can get inflation under control to the parameters where Reserve Bank is comfortable, um, then we don't, there's no need to increase interest rates to up to 3.6%. And that's what the financial markets are factoring is into. Is that within... 2022 or within a, a year of when they... I, I, I th- I, those forecasts are within 12 months. Yeah. yeah. So to increase interest rate, official cash rate to 3.6, you have to go really hard. From 0.1 to right. 3.6. That's right. We have to have ballistic inflation of, of, of like 1970s capacity where it got to about 18% or something. Yeah, and, and the issue is, is that you can't really compare the Australian market to the US, for example. Yeah their inflation is a significant or much bigger problem as well. You've got yeah. wage inflation cutting through as well. Yeah. They had the second inflation figure coming out, which was only 0.2% difference between what they had on the previous quarter. Yeah. Slight fall. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and the increase of money supply that they've had yeah. as, a, as a proportion to what we've done in Australia is significantly higher as well. Mm. I think I read somewhere that 42% of the entire money supply mm. had been increased during COVID. Yeah, period. so yeah. that, that, that's extreme. I know when I, when I interviewed um, uh, Michael Knox from Morgan's, he made the point that mm. when a US budget deficit blows out to that proportion, history kind of says that the, the dollar falls, but the US dollar is not falling at the moment, probably for a, a number a of other reasons. reasons. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you, it's your game to understand where interest rates are going, because yes. ultimately people come to you, you offer mm. higher interest rates than bank deposits because you know it's safe as bank deposits, as most things aren't. Mm. But where do you think interest rates are going? Because that's going to be important to not only borrowers in the, in the future, also your business. I wrote an article about six weeks ago, which I went into greater detail in relation to what our forecasts in relation to interest rates are yep. and what impact it will have to house prices. Mm. Now, uh, Peter Tulip and Trent Saunders uh, have done a really great paper in 2019 and they're uh, RBA economists. The RBA economists, yeah. which talks about the relationship of interest rates versus the difference in the interest rate versus uh, property prices. Mm. The most interesting part of it is that um, if you have a 1% decrease in interest rates, mm. it approximately impacts by appreciation of property price about 30%. Mm. So we, let's look at the reverse. Yeah. So now we're going to be looking at the interest rates going up. Will it have the same impact? Now, our belief is that you have to look at some other variables, yeah. which are also commented in this paper as well. 
we do have a shortage of property. Yeah. We have immigration kicking in, yeah. uh, which we haven't had for the last two years. Um, and there are other variables as well, such, such as uh, vacancy rates, mm. which are now uh, uh, lower than they were pre-COVID. Yeah, and rents are taking up. And rents are going up. Yeah. So if you take all those into effect, I think the negative impact in relation to uh, interest rates will, won't have the same mathematical impact to property On house prices. prices. Yeah. So uh, we have a conservative view, mm. around 15%. But more importantly, even though that our view is conservative uh, in relation to where we think property prices, investors into our fund are not impacted. So mm. let's say that I'm wrong mm. uh, because really a forecast is a forecast yeah. and they increase interest rates, call it 2.5% because inflation gets out of control mm. and property prices go uh, fall by 30, 30%. Now the deals that we have done in our fund, we ha we, and being an ex-banker myself, mm. I look at worst case scenario. Yeah. I wake up in the morning thinking, even though I have and I'm confident in my forecast, mm. what will happen if I'm wrong? Mm. So therefore, what we have done, normally we lend, and I'll try to explain this a bit more, mm. lend 75% against any particular asset that someone offers to us. As, normally, as collateral, collateral, in case something goes wrong. We are secured lenders. Mm. So uh, once again, it's a control measure. So if a borrower borrows from us and they can't pay it back, what's our recourse, what's our security? Mm. So if in the current market, are we doing 75% geared transactions and offering it to our investors? The answer is no. Mm. We've actually pulled it back to around 60, 65. Mm. In case, if we do so have ha a- So price will have to fall more than 35% before right. you might have to go and sell someone's property to Precisely. get that money. Yeah. And the reason why um, we need to do that is that people rely upon our asset class for consistent, regular, income. Mm. Now if they don't get consistent regular income with asset preservation, then that is the whole reason why you invest with us mm. and, you inv and people invest in our asset class. And I think it's quite important to say with all of the volatility that you have in the current market, people should be looking at that portfolio and saying, is my diversification there? Mm. Do I have enough income in my portfolio to withstand a economic shock? Now it's more probable now that we might have something we don't know the timing of it, mm. but it is probable that it could be this year, it could be next year, it could be the following year. So it's about that revaluation from a risk perspective for investors all the time to see what they're invested in and how it works. And I guess the important link and why you would do this analysis is that if you believe the 3.6% the cash rate was a possibility, mm. you then, using the Tulip numbers, have a, a very big fall in house prices. And sure, you would temper it with the other factors, yeah. but still, it would worry you a, a lot in terms of what might happen to your business and the value of the, the collateral that sticks behind the, these, um, these um, um, loans that you've, you've made out there. What, where does your confidence come from that CBA and Matt mm -hmm. Common is more right than the, the doomsday view? I'll tell you where the confidence is. Because if you look at affordability and affordability... I think that was the question. I, I did want you to tell me <laughs> that, but go on. That's right. So if you look at affordability, I don't think that Reserve Bank has a lot of option in relation to increasing it beyond that particular point of time. Yeah. The negative Keynesian effect is that if you take out too much cash flow, after-tax cash flow, from households, um, then you'll have the reverse effect, which is we might be in the risk of a recession because mm -hmm. biz businesses are not going to have as much turnover because people are withholding that money to pay their mortgage. Yeah. Um, that extra spending uh, is not going to be in the economy and then we'll see a reversal of our great fortune of unemployment rate being under 4%. Mm. So I think it's a delicate balance 
And I, I personally believe that even if there is pressure from inflation to increase interest rates, it would be done over a longer period of time, yeah. not necessarily in a 12-month period. Yeah. And I think the danger is for a lot of economists looking at the rest of the world in Australia is that we do have two very important aspects of my belief is that they can cushion our downward risk in relation to needing to increase interest rates and inflation. One of them is that we got, we got immigration. Mm. So Australia is very fortunate that we can increase immigration beyond 1.6. Mm. So uh, before COVID, uh, Australia net migration was second largest in the world. And that has a significant bearing in relation to as a hedge against certain inflation yeah. pressures. Second of all, we have an economy which is based on an inflation hedge, which is mining stocks. Mm. So I think those two elements puts us in a more favourable position in the midst of a, a particular you know, sort of market event mm. or um, over the next two or three years. So I guess also what would help your scenario come, come true would be, A, China gets out of lockdown as yeah. soon as possible. And I, and I read yeah. today, June 1, they're talking about going yeah. out of lockdown, which would be great because that improves the supply chain problems. Yep. hopefully reducing inflation over the next, say, three to six months. Yep. And then on the flip side, if we can get some kind of um, peace between Russia and Ukraine, that would be another positive to bring oil prices down and other commodity prices, which also would be a big help for inflation because it is the inflation fear that's driving yep. these really big interest rate predictions. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there is always, in any type of economy, there is always downward risk and up, uh, upside risk as well. Uh, but. I think the uh, energy crisis playing out in Europe, I think, is overplayed in relation to inflation mm. in Australia. So if, if, if petrol has gone up to $2 a litre, it will, that's a one-off event. Mm. Um, and yes, it will pass on to food and other items, but not necessarily it will be compounding. I think the other interesting aspect to uh, inflation, uh, and a lot, not a lot of people are talking about, is whether um, uh, um, wages are anchored or exp future expectation of prices are anchored or not. Mm. And I think that uh, we haven't had inflation since the 1970s. Mm. So the problem will be is that if you're an, if you're an employee and you demand a 5% increase in your wages every single year, that will spiral inflation. But if mm. it's anchored, I don't think there will be a, such a issue as what everyone believes it will be. And, and why do you say if it's anchored? What's the What's the basis of believing that it is more likely to be anchored? Well, um, because it all comes down to immigration. Mm. So if you do, it's a natural hedge. Mm. So if you bring in more able people who can actually do the work, yeah. Yeah. then you're not going to be demanding the, the one-off increases that we have right now. Yeah. So the baristas on $95 an hour out of the right. coronavirus will go back to $55 well, an I, hour. I was, I was listening to, you know, the certain professions are making more money than uh, you know, like anyway. not you, but yes. other other yes. poor that, other that, people. That, that, that's right. But uh, there are yeah. there are anomalies in the market at the moment which yeah. don't make any sense. And I think those once they come out, we should we should get some balance there. As okay. Well. One last thing as a as a, an idea of you know fear or confidence in the market. Are you seeing lots of people prepared to go into alternative um, lending products like yours? Absolutely. Look, the demand of what we do is increasing, mm. is because I'm, I'm, I'm an ex-banker myself, mm. and I know internally from a bank, um, as soon as you see the property prices are decreasing, mm. they also change their credit policy. 
So we're getting some fantastic opportunities which are bank grade clients coming mm. to us mm. because we can, do, we can understand the business, yeah. we can do it quickly, yeah. um, and it's not that much more expensive than what the bank is offering. Okay, and is that a, a therefore a reasonable indicator that there's still demand out there for money for business expansion purposes? Because most of your yeah. money goes, it's not for it's, residential, it's for, it's for, for business. business expansion. Absolutely. It might be backed by a residential property because it's the yeah. collateral. But so you're an indicator of demand for money for business expansion. Yeah. And at the moment, you're not seeing any We're not seeing any, any contraction. Or anything like that. We're seeing very healthy. Mm. And the proposals that are coming to us are, are, are A-grade quality. So uh, from that perspective, we don't see any issues there from the structural issue in relation to the economy. Yeah. And Paul, what about you know, that same question from an investor perspective? Look, uh, investors, our current investors, uh, enjoy the ability to choose the investment that they want, a specific loan that they want to invest in, which is a great benefit over some of our peers at the moment, mm. because not everyone's risk profile is exa exactly the same. But for an example, we're offering 7% net return uh, to investors that is paid monthly, and it's secured against A-grade quality, um, and it's, the gearing of it is no more than 65%. Mm. So it is very attractive from an investor's perspective. Also, we've got 39 uh, loans that are under management at the moment, and we have zero arrears as well. Mm. So it, that actually shows the quality of what we're actually doing as well. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, a, that's a good piece of news about the market. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us. That's Paul Mirren from M Square Capital. And that's the show for tonight. And always remember, we're not recommending any of the stocks or any of the companies that uh, present on the program. They're people who are providing information, invariably with insights that most of us haven't got. But Ultimately, you have to work out whether you want to use that information for your own investing. And we always say, go to an expert and get your idea tested out by someone who really is qualified to help you. That's the show. If you want to know more information about us, go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. See you on Monday.